Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite exciting director, Robert Bresson. You mean Robert Bresson? Yeah, that's right, Robert Bresson, as we'll be calling him in this episode. This is one of the most intimidating topics we've ever done, I think. Really? More than like, I mean, we haven't done Antonioni or any of the other ones like that, like Tarkovsky. Well, consider a quote that Jay Hoberman wrote in 2012, I Mm -hmm. believe. Bluntly put, to not get Bresson is to not get the idea of motion pictures. It's to have missed that train the Lumiere brothers filmed arriving at Lyon Station 110 years ago. Also... There are very few filmmakers who have been written about more and mm-hmm. by more distinguished people than Bresson. I'm yes. Susan Sontag, Andre Bazin, mm-hmm. you know, among them. And all of them talk about how his films are cinema just straight to the vein. He's doing yeah. something that nobody else does. He, and as he would talk about a lot throughout his career, he was trying to define what cinema, or as he liked to call it, uh, le cinématographe could do. Yeah. Or th- should do, really. There's a sense when you read about him that he's not merely a great director, but the great director. And when you read Hoberman's quote, it's almost like a challenge. Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't get this, you pass, fail. And... It's obviously a willfully provocative quote because Bresson is also a very challenging director, you know, right to the level of what do you expect cinema to be? Mm-hmm. Like he withhold, he famously withholds so much of the things that, you know, people who love movies expect from movies. But I think that when you say it like that, it's kind of frightening to people that want to watch his films. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, oh man, if I don't get it, then I just don't get cinema. Mm-hmm. But in reality, if you sit down and watch something like Pickpocket, you'll realize very quickly that it's fun and mm-hmm. it moves really fast. Mm-hmm. And that Bresson was doing a lot of interesting stuff with the camera and the story that he's telling, that it's not the challenge that everybody makes it out to be in the same way that like, Tarkovsky Mm -hmm. is challenging because there's a filmmaker that if someone wanted to watch his pictures, I would go, all right, prepare yourself for what you're about to watch and get into a different state of mind. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you have to do that with Bresson. That said, I mean, he's he's such a cinematic filmmaker Mm -hmm. and yet he's like like he's a filmmaker. he's, He's an artist who could not exist in other art forms. And yet his films aren't showy in the way that a lot of um you know so-called cinematic artists like tarkovsky for instance are Mm -hmm. like he's he's a man whose images are striking and thoughtfully composed but not pretty you know no i think that we should talk about like what people think of when they think of bresson right off the top of this episode because number one it's the way that he would treat his actors mm-hmm. or like he liked to call them his models. Mm-hmm. He was all about using non-actors and kind of drilling into them through multiple takes, all of the artifice from their performance. His idea was that if you did 20 to 30 takes, the actor or model would stop trying to imbue something in the words that they're saying and they would just return to their natural state in the kind of way that when you order a loaf of bread, you don't think about the way you're going to deliver it. You just say, I want a loaf of bread. So here are two quotes from his landmark book, Notes on the Cinematograph, which is a collection of aphorisms of his philosophy of film. Basically, his Chairman Mao is Little Red Book. That's exactly what it is. Two types of films, those that employ the resources of theater, actors, direction, etc., and use the camera to reproduce, those that employ the resources of cinematography and use the camera to create. And then the other quote is, the mixture of true and false yields falsity, photographed theater. 
The false, when it is homogenous, can yield truth. That's theater. And we should clarify here that when he uses the word cinematography, that's really a word that he kind of took for himself. Mm -hmm. And he means it in a way that cinema can be truthful in a way that nothing else can be. Mm -hmm. Um, But not when you bring in in his view, the kind of artifice of mm. other art forms. Those are the property of other art forms, not cinema. Like there's another quote in the book where he says that when you have an actor on screen acting, it does a particular thing. When you have a tree just being a tree, like that is truth mm. because it is not trying to imitate or do anything in the same way that if you bring a dog on stage, it feels weird because the dog is a dog. It's not acting. And there's a weird discomfort in the audience. Mm. Something else that Bresson like to talk about was that what interested him in the cinema was the kind of relationship between cuts. It wasn't particularly the shot itself, but the way that the shot and then the um, next shot would create an emotional response in the viewer. He wanted things to always be flowing forward, like a kind of musicality to the film that he would construct. Yeah, and and the images themselves, in and of themselves, are not as important, Mm -hmm. which is why so many of them are very direct and unfussy. Uh, Another good quote from him, a hole made of good images can be detestable. Yes. (laughs) And, And another quote, not beautiful photography, not beautiful images, but necessary images and photography, which is remarkable because, you know, when I look back, at, when I think about Bresson, I think of his films as being very beautiful. Mm-hmm. They are. Uh, and th- they are, but it's it's a different... You, I also don't remember as many shots as I remember in Tarkovsky. It's a different kind of beauty. Yeah, I think that the way that he kind of like creates a flow in his films makes you think of them as a whole instead of individual shots. Mm -hmm. And this week while I was watching his pictures again and really studying them, he does use the camera in ways that you don't associate with him. Tracking, zooming in, Mm -hmm. basically telling the viewer exactly what he wants them to see. He doesn't leave it up to chant in the way that when you hear him talk about the the way that he directs actors would lead you to believe. Because when you hear that he just makes the actor go monotone, Mm -hmm. that he doesn't want any inflection in their voices you imagine a director that's creating a frame that like the viewer can read whatever he wants into it and that's not the case at all yeah well his style becomes more and more stripped down as he goes on he Mm -hmm. reaches his mature style with his third or fourth film diary of a country priest yes um but that film employs some extra diegetic music it Mm -hmm. has some tracking shots Mm -hmm. uh once by the time you get to his last film l'argent it's very static it's very much about shot 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 as like bricks in a building yeah just keeping things moving and he puts those shots together for a reason but especially in the later films he doesn't necessarily direct your eye in the shot there aren't a lot of establishing shots for example there aren't a lot of there's not a lot of music to tell you what to think you know he's presenting these images for a reason but it's it's his reason and you can do with them what you want. But like the way that you said that the way that he constructs a scene, especially as he goes along, it's a lot of close-ups. In his film La Salat du Lac, there's like a jousting scene and there's no establishing shot. You just see like the feet of the horse and you see a close-up of the lance. It's all very clear in a way that we associate cinema with today. But that kind of montage close-up style, it's something that wasn't that popular in French cinema at the time because he's still defining the way that he wants you to feel but in a very specific way that doesn't like shove it in your face yeah he wants you to come towards the screen Mm -hmm. um and he, he wants a certain kind of a different participation a different concentration from the audience i would say something like diary of a country priest which is i believe 
technically his third feature film. Mm-hmm. He made two before then that were in more conventional styles. And there was a short as well. And this one is the one that when people talk about him, they go to as like, this is what uh, Bressonian style is, mm-hmm. which is a story of a priest that moves to a small village. He's a very young man and he finds it difficult to um, continue with his duties. For some reason, people make fun of him. They hate him. And he's going through some physical problems as well, which has resulted in him making his diet just wine and bread, which he lets kind of um, turn into mush in the wine. His life is basically like Christ's passion. Yeah. You know, he, he is suffering for all these people in the community. He's trying to absorb all of all of the bad things that are happening to them, listen to their problems, help them, while, you know, he himself is just... Yeah, he's just suffering. And when you hear that log line, you're like, oh, man, a film of just a guy like essentially starving to death. It doesn't make you want to watch it. But then when you do, it's actually super engaging in the suspense and the dramatic situations that uh, Brisson sets up. This movie introduces a number of the themes uh, of Brisson's work, and it also is kind of the beginning of maybe the the battlegrounds of Bressonian criticism, because there are a number of different interpretations about, you know, what, what these films are philosophically. Paul Schrader, who's a great fan of Bresson, talks about him as exemplifying the spiritual style in cinema. How would you define that? Uh, Well, Schrader defined it as transcendental cinema, a book that he wrote when he was 26 years old. It was a book about uh, Bresson, Ozu, and Dreyer. Mm -hmm. And it was about the idea that cinema can bring you to a place that is transcendental. Like the kind of moment of grace that Schrader talks a lot about in his cinema, where, I mean, I tried to read this book and it reads like an academic book written by a 26-year-old. But his theory, it depends very much on the stillness yes. of, of the film, the, the stillness of the images and and the concentration. But I wouldn't consider Bresson's cinema still. I consider it something that's mm. always in motion, especially in his early films. Well, there's also, you know, a school of thought that his films are very materialist. Yes. So his films are very, you know, for, forget about spirituality, even though he deals in spiritual themes. His films are about, you know, the images are very literal mm-hmm. and actions have consequences. So Brisson was not somebody who would talk a lot about his process. Any interviews with him, there's a cinéaste de notre temps episode where he's interviewed he just answers and basically quotes from notes on the cinematograph mm-hmm. where it's like, uh, okay, I guess like that's a quote from a novel that you like. He wasn't able to kind of articulate exactly what he was trying to do. Or he was unwilling. And people on set that work with him said that late in his career, he wouldn't even like direct them. Like the assistant director would do the directing mm-hmm. because he had difficulty kind of communicating what he want. And when he would ask them to do stuff, it would be a lot of like, all right, move like this exactly like this, move an inch to the left. There's no discussion of emotion in his direction because he knows what he wants and he just wants it recreated on screen and that will give the viewer that transcendental truth. Also, there's very little known about Bresson's life. Yeah. In fact, I believe his birth date isn't even known. His birth year isn't even known. Yeah, or the year that he would give 
was actually wrong. Yeah. It was like three years off or something like that. Uh, what is known is that he was a POW in Germany mm-hmm. in the early 40s, which may have contributed both to, you know, the subject matter of some of his films, like A Man Escaped. Yes. And it may have also contributed to this idea that, you know, his 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 models, his actors are very still on the surface, but they have this very torrential inner life that we often hear through narration. Do you think that Diary of a Country Priest reaches that level of transcendentalness that Schrader talks about that kind of image of God in cinema. I mean, not being a particularly religious man, mm-hmm. it's uh, hard for me to even define what transcendental is. Yeah, Schrader has difficulty in his book yeah. as well. I mean, I was I was really raised Catholic, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know. So uh, was I. Yeah, I, I think maybe what I gravitate more towards, and it is all the you know the the suffering. That's you, something that I always found interesting about Catholicism: the suffering itself more than the grace. And the film seems to offer an answer, which is that like. It's not specifically the suffering that leads him to grace. Mm-hmm. It's almost the connection that he has with other people. And that's almost all of his early films are all about that. Whether it's Pickpocket or even, to a lesser extent, A Man Escaped. Mm-hmm. It's about the kind of connections that the main characters have with supporting characters that leads them to that moment of enlightenment. It's not them alone and the pain that they go through that leads them closer to God. I think what I'm most moved about in Diary of a Country Priest, and I'm also moved about in O Hazard Balthazar, is this this man who has these very strongly held principles and continues in the face of... Uh, destruction? Yeah, in, in the face of destruction. Or O Hazard Balthazar, which uh, follows a donkey through mm-hmm. its entire life as it mostly suffers. It's just this... Yeah, and I like the donkey, it. <laughs> the donkey itself in that film, like what the movie is most famous for is that it's not like humanized in any way. Like mm-hmm. it's just a donkey mm-hmm. and it just goes through its life and you follow it. And the emotional connections that you make with it are just based on the suffering you see it go through. But there is something so powerful about, mm-hmm. um, for lack of a better word, the humanity of that donkey, yes. even though it doesn't have uh, Well, because there's no kind of blocks for you to run into, right? There's mm-hmm. only the suffering and the fact that this thing is continuing to live, mm-hmm. so that when you do see it pass away, uh, spoiler for Oza Balthazar, <laughs> it is sad. Yeah. Because, like, even in the movie, though, it doesn't even pass away on its own. It passes away kind of surrounded by other things. Yeah. Don't want to give a spoiler to all those donkey heads out there who haven't seen the movie yet. <laughs> yeah, and the donkey is just so unapologetically a donkey. Yeah. There's and like there's a nobility to that. Like, even when it gets beaten, it will just go over and, like, eat some grass over on the side. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't react to it or have any, like, continuation from the beating. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it that much more emotional. Now, do you think... When his models for Bresson films, when they talk in that monotone, does it create more emotion for you? Not necessarily. I mean, I think it does for me in the context of Bresson's work. His worldview, his style is so, so perfect, you know, within his world. Um, It's so complete Mm -hmm. within his body of work. But I I think that, like, depending on the movie, it has different effects. Yeah. Because I think Pickpocket is like genuinely funny because of the story that he is telling. The fact that like the narration will say something and then he will repeat that information mm-hmm. or it'd be like, I was in such turmoil while this was going on. And then you just see his dead like, yeah. slack face. He's such a sad sack. That it's funny, I think, in a way that, I mean, 
he had to have known at a certain level Mm -hmm. that like what he was doing was entertaining in that way because you look at Diary of a Country Priest and that film is not funny. Yeah. Like it's doing what it wants to do very specifically. Or there's another movie, a later film, The Devil Probably, Mm -hmm. which is about, you know, this existential despair facing these hot young French Parisians who fuck. Yeah. (laughs) You know, these cool young students where they look so beautiful, Mm -hmm. you know, and that and many of Brasson's models look very beautiful. And that they're could, all beautiful. They're all like skinny, yeah. kind of like thin-faced people. But like the guy in Pickpocket isn't quite the same as that. You no, know? he has not bad an looking. interesting look to yeah. him, like a different look. And we should point out that like Brasson's film also have this like mechanism of process that fascinates mm-hmm. him. We discuss the way that he kind of constructs sequences, especially as it goes later on into, into his career, into like close-ups and push-ins to hands or feet doing stuff. But like Pickpocket is the ultimate example of that, where you see these mechanisms of how they rob people. And the way that he presents it which is that he never like shows us how they're going to do it most mm. of the time. He will just show it happen. Mm-hmm. So the discovery of it going on is what is entertaining about it and the precision of it. Yeah, there are some scenes in that movie that are kind of like ballet. Or, yeah, or, you know, kung fu films because <laughs> of the way that it plays out, this yeah. process that goes in and out. I know you're laughing because kung fu is like a lesser genre when it compares to Brussels films. But if he made a kung fu film, it would be right in his yeah. wheelhouse. It would yeah. be the same thing. You could even say that La Solo du Lac is like the closest he came to a martial arts film. Because mm. even that film starts with like two minutes of goofy George Romero style splatter. <laughs> By the way, getting back to your point about the acting, I think uh, his philosophy of acting is absolutely perfect within the context of his mm-hmm. work. Do I agree with his philosophy of acting outside of the body? No. Uh, his body of work? No. I mean, I don't know. I, the pleasure of acting is one of the central pleasures of movies but like the decisions that he made on how he wanted to approach his filmmaking is very individualistic and i kind of feel bad for him because he couldn't enjoy other movies if they didn't reflect his own worldview uh i watched an interview with a cinematographer where he said that he and brasson would go out and see movies and brasson would spend the entire time shaking his head going like why did they make that decision why did they do that like he could only enjoy things if they fit within the framework of the way that he would make them. I mean, notes on the cinematograph. I really enjoy the book. Mm -hmm. And like, it's partly, you know, an artistic manifesto. And it's partly like almost like an act of trolling because he's so extreme for a lot of it. I think there's stuff in there that is useful even for not Brisson, like his his war against phoniness. Yes. I mean, I mean he's a real uh, Caulfield yeah. when he talks about it sometimes. I mean, I guess you can define, you know, what corniness mm. or, or phoniness is to you. But I think he's his I like his thinking. But it almost sounds in some of his kind of um, pronouncements in the book that the idea of seeing any effort on screen especially when it comes to acting is in itself a phoniness Mm -hmm. which like when i read the book and i just did this week for the first time in its entirety it's not long it's only about 80 pages and it is incredibly repetitive (laughs) like he shares the same thought a dozen times like he hates the idea of theatrical uh, techniques being shown on the screen because in his opinion if you can do multiple takes of something you should get a different effect than you would get on stage when it has to happen in the moment well i think there are statements he makes that are quite profound i think so too so for example when he says don't run after poetry it penetrates unaided through the joint 
Chains or mm-hmm. Ellipses. I think even if you aren't uh, quite as extreme and ascetic as Brasson is, that's useful advice. There's also a lot of contradictions in the book because you also get the idea that he's also going through a process. The book is actually broken up in years, mm. almost as if to indicate like, oh, this is where he was in his life. This is what he believed at this time. And these things may change as he goes along. Because mm-hmm. he also talks about like music should never kind of underscore a scene it should be the entire scene or not be there at all Mm -hmm. when you look at something like pickpocket the way the music kicks in is almost like parody of melodrama that it just punctuates the scene i feel like it's uh almost like used as catharsis Mm -hmm. i mean in pickpocket you know the the feeling of of stealing something Mm -hmm. uh gives you a big rush yes so i think that's what the the music does there like when he's actually in the act of stealing Mm -hmm. uh it's you know very yeah kind of no music it's all about the sound effects Mm -hmm. like evaluating how funny brisson thought Mm -hmm. his movies were is a little bit difficult because he is this figure that when interviewed would just make these kind of big broad pronouncements Mm -hmm. and then you watch something like la solo du lac where it's the Arthurian legend, but it's just stripped of everything. Like that was the gimmick of it is like, there's no big fantastical sequences. It's just these guys in a camp with tents and like the lamest looking castle in the world, just kind of going through the paces of, of not how it would be because there is this level of artifice to it. Mm. But what if you took out all the like big drama from it? Mm. And what that equals is guys in suits walking around and all you hear is the sound of the suits. Mm. Like it just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And like, that's funny because the idea of people making these big dramatic pronouncements in a deadpan and then turning and all you hear is like, when they turn like that's pretty goofy and it makes me wonder like was Brasson in on the joke and can people even write about him in those terms now or are they kind of straitjacketed with the fact that he is a masterpiece filmmaker and to talk about him in those terms would kind of diminish him well I think the films are entertainments yes they are even though they weren't uh, particularly commercially successful yeah they're 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 entertaining you know a man escaped is well a man escaped is his most entertaining film yeah Yeah. i think a man escaped if somebody wants to know of his style i would tell them go watch this one Mm -hmm. it's like a hundred minutes long almost all of his movies except for diary of a country priest i think his later ones are under 90 minutes i mean pickpocket 75 minutes Mm -hmm. perfect time his films I think become less accessible as they go along well they get more pessimistic yes and he when questioned about that said that oh I don't think they're pessimistic I think they're more lucid so basically Brisson turned into an edgelord as he got older which is like (laughs) you know the world is shit and everybody dies at the end of it which was the kind of thematic conceit of all his later films uh Mouchette uh, the Devil Probably, uh, L'Argent. It's all about how the world is shit I mean, and I, everybody dies. I think L'Argent is a very beautiful film. I think it I has, think L'Argent yeah. is a very funny film yeah, as well. Yeah, it has moments of great humor uh, mm-hmm. because, again, he's he's like brought his style, he stripped it down as mm-hmm. far as he'll ever strip it down. So, you know, the, the juxtapositions of the shots can be very funny. Uh, it's it's also like, because he stripped it down so much, It like you have to work extra hard to follow it because, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes... You know, in his use of sound, sound he'll use sound to convey something that's happening off screen. And well, like Brisson, if you go through his filmography, which everybody will point out is not that big. There's 13 films, I believe. Mm. You notice that like at the beginning of his career in Diary of a Country Priest, he's using every cinematic technique to kind of create an emotion in the audience, whether it be music, 
lots of voiceover. And as you mentioned, as it goes along, he strips all of that stuff mm -hmm. out till it's like the purest form. And the fact that most of them end in death mm -hmm. kind of shows you how he evolved through his filmmaking. And we have to understand as well that like he made his first feature film when he was 42. Mm. So like his kind of worldview, it makes sense that it would evolve in that way as it went along. You know, I once saw his film, The Trial of Joan of Arc, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of considered the least essential film from his mature period. I believe it's not even an hour either. Like it's real It's a short. little bit over an hour, I yeah. think. And it's mostly just done from the transcripts of the Joan of Arc trial. True and, reality. I mean, you know, believe it or not, um, I, I'm not necessarily saying it's a better film than the Dreyer film, but mm -hmm. I felt more personally moved by it because, I mean, they could not be more different in style. And I think maybe it's just because um, I'm I'm more of a materialist than I am a spiritualist. <laughs> uh, I am, am more moved by a very straight ahead depiction of Joan of Arc than one that's this very, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, heavy duty uh, uh, psychological treatment. Well, I think that like me talking about the humor that I see in Brassens film comes from the unreality of like some of his movies presenting these dramatic sequences in a deadpan mm -hmm. because there's a disconnect there to me because I'm not used to seeing that, that the unreality of it makes me laugh. Yeah, Susan Sontag argued for him as kind of a Brechtian filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does it does seem to contradict the idea that he was going for straight realism. Yeah, because like... He's as stylized as anyone. And he would say that like his idea was that when you strip everything out of the movie, mm -hmm. the viewer will just read their reality into it. Like the emotion that they can see in these performances. I think that's true. Yeah, I think it's true as well. But it also like demands a lot to the audience mm -hmm. that sometimes people aren't willing to communicate and will react sometimes like me where something like pickpocket is funny because <laughs> of the interplay between all the elements that he thought were the most important yeah. in his cinema. Yeah. He invites a, a range of reactions. Yeah. Which I think is good. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably the one thing I want to do with this podcast is to encourage people who haven't seen his films to go watch them because they're not challenging in the way that all the academic texts will lead you to believe. I think I'll conclude with a nice quote by James Quant uh, <laughs> since I'm, I will uh, pilfer all my insights from other people. Mm -hmm. He wrote, Brisson's obdurate vision and style produced a cinema of paradox in which the denial of emotion creates emotionally overwhelming works. Minimalism becomes plenitude. The withholding of information makes for narrative density. Fragmentation evokes a sense of the world's wholeness and the attention to the surface of the work, as Brisson put it, produces inexhaustible depth. Wow, that's it. deep, man. Yeah. And I would uh, recommend to read his notes on the cinematograph because the last part is an old man who's super angry at everyone. And that's the best part of the book. Put it on, uh, put it in your bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So friends and family can just flip through it. It's kind of like Uncle John's um, <laughs> bathroom reader. All right. So you can send us letters as per usual at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And we do have letters this week. But first... Let's uh, advertise our Patreon, which uh, we did one on everyone's favorite first sound picture, The Jazz Singer. Did we like it? Did we not? What are our thoughts on Al Jolson? Uh, which one of us is an Al Jolson super fan? I mean, you can probably guess, but uh, you'll have to listen to the episode to that's, find that's out. slander, by the way. <laughs> Calling somebody an Al Jolson super fan is uh, is a very loaded statement. What about like an... I, a person with a, with a scholarly interest in Al Jolson? And his name is Justin the Clue. I mean, or is it? You'll have to listen to the episode to find out. Mm -hmm. It's $5 a month. You can check us out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club 
And I also want to talk about the episode we did last week, which was on the Nitrate Film Festival. And it was a long one, too. It was like a feature-length episode just on that. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, I would recommend subscribing just for that, because I think there was a lot of interesting stuff that we talked about. I think so, there. too. Our first letter is from David Wagner, and it goes, First Theater Experience and Show Suggestion. Hi, Justin and Will. Do you remember your first time seeing a movie in theaters, and do you think it shaped how you watch movies today? You know, I don't remember the first time I was in the cinema to go see a movie. I remember being a kid and seeing movies, and I've said this on the podcast before, and how nervous it would make me to the point that I would have to urinate a lot. Wow. <laughs> because, like... I don't know what it was like a tightness in my stomach. And I think because hmm. my parents didn't take me to the movies very often, it felt like a momentous event. And I think I was even a little bit worried that like, what if my parents didn't like this movie? Oh, wow. I, I never worried about that. Really? But I mean, going to the movies as a kid was so much more exciting than it is now. Mm. I mean, the scale of the screen, because I didn't do it as much then as I do now. The screen was, it was so huge. The sound was so big. And if I was going to see a movie in a theater, it was probably a movie I really wanted to see. Like, mm. Like, you know, Liar Liar with Jim Carrey or, or Batman Forever or, you know, a movie like that. So, like, I would be, like, trembling with anticipation. My most vivid childhood memory was seeing Nightmare Before Christmas mm -hmm. in the theaters. And I know we saw it at a matinee. And I know that at that point, my father didn't have a car. I think he had maybe recently divorced with my mother because we had to run to take the bus, which was a foreign experience to me after the movie ended. And I remember the film was so loud and so scary that I spent the entire running time with my ears covered and my head like in my lap because the images and the sound mm. were so overwhelming that I couldn't take it. And obviously with things that terrify us as children, it became an obsession as I grew older. <laughs> I think the first theatrical experience of any kind I had was at a drive-in in 1992 <laughs> when when my parents went to see A League of Their Own. The other, this is a very important part of my origin story, by the way, the other screen at the drive-in was playing Batman Returns. And the images from that, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Batman. And the images were so striking so mm -hmm. powerful like i had i couldn't even comprehend what that screen was showing and that started a batman obsession that lasted a lot of my uh boyhood yeah I, it's funny how like things that when you see them as a kid like even nightmare before christmas that kind of like tim burton now mm -hmm. hot topic imagery mm -hmm. kind of imprinted itself on me and because of disney musicals like i love musicals like they are part of my dna and i think that's only the case because i saw it as a kid and it became something that was normal for me so it's not an issue that i know a lot of people my age have when it comes to musicals the first movie i saw in an actual movie theater was aladdin mm -hmm. um i think after that uh, I mean, I remember these because they were such great memories for me. You know I what? I must have seen Aladdin as one of my first movies as well. And mm -hmm. David Wagner here, he writes a bunch about how he saw Aladdin as well. It's funny that it's all a communal experience that we all have mm -hmm. seeing Aladdin. Yeah. These Disney films is what define like the childhood yeah. experience for most people. And I mean, I remember the next year going with my dad to see uh, the cartoon movie Batman Mask of the Phantasm. I saw that one too. Yeah. Too scary. It scared the shit out of me. It, that movie was challenging for mm -hmm. me. I mean, I liked it because it was a Batman movie, but it was so much more mature than I was expecting at that age. Yeah, because people die in that film. Yeah. And having watched the Batman animated series on TV was not an experience yeah. that I had connected with in that and way. And so much of it is about Batman's love life before yeah. he's Batman. His uh, love life, which ends with the woman being sucked into a turbine at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're just bringing that back. I hadn't even thought about seeing Mask of the Phantasm. And probably yeah. the best experience at a theater when I was a kid. I'm sorry, I'm going on a nostalgic reverie now. I, I think seeing Batman Forever in a theater was... Uh, really? Oh, 
God, what I saw a, Batman a Forever, and I, you know, this may be kind of rewriting history. I remember not liking it and it not being what I wanted it to be, even though that, like, friggin' Jim Carrey in a Batman movie. Oh, yeah. Like, that was everything that I wanted in my life. Like, I pawned through my Disney Adventure magazine. Oh, I had both of those. About, like, oh, man, I can't wait to see them on the big screen. That still exists, Disney Adventure. That was such a part of my childhood. Disney Adventure, there was one that had Val Kilmer as Batman on the cover, and there was one that had Jim Carrey as the Riddler. I had the Jim Carrey as the Riddler one. Oh, and I, you know, it it was falling apart by the end of the summer. I read it so much. (laughs) I think I said this before, but I remember... I'd reading a Disney Adventure interview with George Lucas on the re-release of the Star Wars films. Huh. And he said, I'm probably going to make some more, but it's probably going to be like three to six years. And that was like so unimaginable to me, like this giant gap to when the next Star Wars movies would come oh, out. Oh, yeah. Three years? Yeah. Like, I, I was probably like seven at that time. Yeah. I can't even imagine. That's half your life almost. Dude, were VHSs a big part of your life when oh, you yeah, were a kid? Oh, yeah. Big time. Because I remember like my mom would get me like Beauty and the Beast on VHS. And I was so excited that I actually ripped the big box apart huh. like pulling the wrapping off i mean on every friday night when i was a little kid we would go to the blockbuster mm. to rent something and that was you know my favorite ritual of the week i would have to ask my parents because i think that like the ritual of seeing movies and renting movies felt like such a rare thing when mm. i was a kid especially when my parents uh, separated mm. and I, I i'm curious to know if that is actually true mm. or if it's just something that i built up in my imagination anyway uh thanks very much for the letter uh david he also mentions at the end that he would like us to do a jackass episode and um we, good news we did one and it's a patreon episode we watched jackass the movie yeah so pay up pal. <laughs> <laughs> um and so our next letter is from jp mcdevitt and the subject line is spoofs, etc. Gentlemen, first time writer, short time listener. Hmm, that sounds like a Michael and Us fan. I was brought in through Michael and Us. There we go. New patron. <laughs> so he can watch the ja- he can listen to the Jackass episode. This all regards stuff you've mentioned recently. Feel free to cut out or read none of it. On pushing the logic further and further, you were speaking of a top secret scene. Late Seinfeld did a great job with the general principle. Same characters, same relatable social pickles, but pumps it up to 11 and or throw in some magic. Birthday wishes come true. Switching apartment makes people switch personalities. Evil ventriloquist dummy is real, etc. Oh yeah, Late Seinfeld, I you know, I've, I've seen all of the Larry David seasons, but late Seinfeld is like that era when like Kramer is a turkey. Yeah. Like, it, it, right. I feel like it's a little more controversial among the fans. And that's right? the one that I kind of associate the most with Seinfeld, I feel, because mm. that's the most, I don't want to say iconic, but those images yeah. of like Kramer being like, how's it going, Newman? And yeah. he's like in the turkey costume or the dummy that moves around in the room. But I think there's a bit of a consensus that the show was starting to jump the shark. My stepmom hates those seasons. Mm -hmm. I think that the big breaking point was when George's fiance died from licking the stamps. Right. That that was pushing it too far. That's also what I've seen up to. Oh, really? Yeah, you haven't I've seen, seen past I've that? Seen, well, I've seen scattered episodes past it, but I've seen every episode up to that. Oh, you gotta watch past that. That's when it gets, like, really yeah, crazy I, and I, fun. I, I will at some point. And the thing is that, like, it lasted so long that you have both spectrums, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you can enjoy both of them in different yeah. ways. Anyway, that's a tangent about Seinfeld. Yeah. And the letter writer continues, I refuse to believe that Batman and Robin is bad. 
Okay. Have never seen. Oh, so he's never seen Batman and Robin. I saw Batman Forever in 35mm last year. On 35mm? I thought it was thoroughly enjoyable. Cannot comprehend how Batman, Batman and Robin Forever talk in this episode. would be able to mess campy silliness with huge fantastical sets. I've chosen to believe that the hatred is just normies and comic book nerds who don't get it for different reasons. But now you've made it more difficult for me. Um, well... We also did a Patreon episode on Batman and Robin. We t- yeah, yeah, we did. And we went into a lot of detail on why it doesn't work. And you know what? I would actually say that I would be in the same place that this letter writer was before we watched it, which is like, how can it be bad? Like, I like crazy over the top stuff. Yeah. The, so, and it's also Joel Schumacher is a gay filmmaker and he mm-hmm. brings a very gay sensibility to it. And you would think, given that. Why hasn't it been reclaimed? It's boring. Yes. Which I think we go through in the episode. <laughs> and it's cynical. Yes. It's it's a it's a shitty corporate, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, money machine. I don't think Batman and Robin, like you said, has been reclaimed by many people unless it's an ironic reclamation. Yeah. I think I've seen a couple of kind of desperate attempts. Um, I don't know. All right. So thank you very much for your letter, JP. And onward and upward to Scotty Gilmer. And he goes, great director, small filmographies. Ooh, this is a deep cut from early in our run. Hello, hosts. I'm a fairly new fan of the show and an even more recent Patreon subscriber, but I've been burning through your back catalog lately during my commute and long solo work shifts. In your postscript on the one-shot director's episode, you question whether or not a director with one film under their belt could qualify as a great director. As someone who thinks about Bob Fosse at least once a day, this got me wondering, how many great movies does it take to be a great director? In my estimation, Fosse directed two masterpieces, Cabaret and All That Jazz, one mostly great movie, Sweet Charity, and two that I have mixed feelings about, Lenny and star 80 but on the strengths of cabaret and all that jazz i say he's a great director maybe he's not the best example because his broadway career ensured he'd be a big name even if he never got behind the camera but making the case for him as a great seems odd when you stack his relatively small oeuvre against those of his contemporary this raises other questions like what if hal ashby or a friend of the show peter bogdanovich quit working after the 70s or even earlier Mm, i like a friend of the show peter bogdanovich if you're listening right now come on would we like them more and waste time wondering what they could have accomplished, not knowing that the slugger's wife and a saintly switch were in store? <laughs> or if Terrence Malick never returned from his 20-year hiatus, would really Scott be a better director if he'd only made Alien? Maybe these questions seem too quantitative, and when it comes to detecting greatness, I should just trust my inner Potter Stewart and know it when I see it. So this is something we talked about, oof, it feels like a hundred episodes ago. You know... Early in the run of this show, I feel like I was much more preoccupied with the idea of what makes a great director mm-hmm. than I am now. We had a bit of an argument where you said that they can't be a great director unless they have a body of work behind them that can very clearly articulate a world view mm-hmm. that you know that it isn't just a fluke. I mean, I think I maybe still believe that a bit, but I also kind of think, who cares? Yeah, but, I, I don't. If yeah. someone made like two great movies and then passed away, then they're a great director based on those two movies. Mm -hmm. You just have to, when you say someone's a great director, understand what their filmography looks like. However, I think the uh, letter writer raises an interesting point about directors whose uh, body of work goes, you know, so long and produces so much stuff that, um, you know, their greatness may come in doubt. What's interesting about Hal Ashby is that I believe that he's considered a great director, that his like classic films have risen to the level that people know and that his lesser films have kind of faded Mm. into memory. While Peter Bogdanovich is often considered a guy who had a few great films and then just kind of like screwed it up. Mm -hmm. And then he doesn't get talked about that much in terms of like, 
I want to say his great pictures, but gets talked more about like his film geekiness and what he kind of represented as a filmmaker. Yeah, people sort of think, you know, we're the great films like Polly Platt's doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, an example of maybe what the letter writer was talking about is like uh, Woody Allen has made maybe, I don't know, 10 mm-hmm. great or very good movies and a number of okay movies. Um, but, you know, after 1992, the, the work gets a lot. Not only does the work get dodgier, but its limitations become clearer. Mm-hmm. And those limitations uh, suggest a limitation of his worldview that makes even the great movies look a little less good. Well, you could also talk about it in terms of like people that passed away before they had the opportunity to make a career of kind of like okay movies. Mm. Or that they were so kind of iconic in their time that that's what defined them. Like someone like Bruce Lee, that if he had mm-hmm. lived for another 40 years, I don't think people would talk about him in the way that we talk about him today. Yeah, or James Dean. Yeah, James Dean is the other example. Because just look at somebody like Montgomery Clift, who was doing a lot of stuff that James Dean was doing, but he went just a little too long compared to Dean. Then again, Marlon Brando. That's you know, true. He, yeah. had, he had about five great years, mm-hmm. and then he had maybe two great years in the 70s. Yes. <laughs> and then a lot of other stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I think that Marlon Brando is such like an outward personality that that yeah. kind of what defines him. He also and, created it. You know? And the later years are also, like, such, like, hilarious shit show. Oh, yeah, they are part of his mystique. Yeah, yeah. and he, mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, he did have Last Tango in Paris and Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. So that kind of defines him. And, like, people don't really talk about the other pictures that he made. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you very much for that letter. It was very much appreciated. And as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Next week... We're going to have ourselves a few laughs because we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite character, Bugs Bunny, Space Jam. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we're not going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about the Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies, Termite Terrace, Warner Brothers animation, essentially. And in particular, we'd like to shine a bit of a light on the Warner Brothers directors. Mm-hmm. Chuck Jones, Frank Bo- Tashlin, Bob Clampett. Tex Avery. Yep. All those guys. Uh, Fritz Freeling, yep. the guy who actually won the most Oscars. Uh, Robert McKimson. Yep. All everyone's favorites. Um, <laughs> and we just want to kind of highlight these filmmakers and talk about like what they brought to the cartoons that they made. Because when people think about like Warner Brothers animation, they think about like a house style, mm-hmm. principally Chuck Jones. But I'd like to actually kind of break it up and discuss what each of them brought to the uh, animated segments that they made. Mm-hmm. And if people are like, whoa, 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 those are cartoons, aren't they? They played on TV. Nuh-uh, they played theatrically when they came out in the 40s and early 50s. So it's still within that important cinema club kind of mandate, I guess. Are we going to watch uh, The Lunatics Unleashed? <laughs> <laughs> Remember Uh, that cartoon show? Yep. I posted a photo of it on uh, my Facebook wall just recently. (laughs) I don't remember it. I just saw ads for it. That was that show where uh, Bugs and Daffy and the gang are are cool alien crime fighters. Mm. Well, I mean, I should ask this question now that if anybody listening here has kids, like younger kids, I'd be really curious if they have any affinity for the classic kind of Merry Melodies, Looney Tunes, theatrical shorts. Yeah, do they get shown? Like, And how would they see them? Yeah. Because like me and Will, we grew up on them playing like every day, oh, essentially yeah. as like filler. But like, do kids these days watch those shorts or has it kind of evolved into like, there's also like a small interstitial Bugs Bunny short called Wabbit that plays a lot on supposedly mm-hmm. like Cartoon Network and stuff like that. And is that their Looney Tunes now? Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, send me a tweet at the clue and then the letter J. Just let me know or send me an email 
Uh, I'm actually very curious about this fact. Uh, as per usual, like I said, you can follow me on Twitter at DeClue and then the letter J. Uh, Will Sloan ESQ. And on Letterboxd, you can follow me. It's Justin DeClue, D-E-C-L-O-U-X. Mm-hmm. And uh, we really appreciate it when you follow us. We really appreciate it when you um, write us a review and rate us on iTunes. Something we haven't asked oh, in, yeah. I feel like, 50 episodes. Yeah. And because we haven't asked, no one has done it. <laughs> so um, we really appreciate it if you would do that. Tell your friends. Retweet these episodes. We're looking for that big, famous person who's going to retweet us. So until next week's episode, which I'm very excited about, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So when we were visiting the George Eastman house, um, they have an exhibition right now about Indian cinema. And specifically, they have it because they recently came into um, possession of 500 films. I think it was something like 730-something cans of film, but there were doubles in that. Mm -hmm. And that it's currently one of the biggest... Indian film collections in North America. And most of these films came from a theater that went out of business. All of them. Yeah. And that's crazy to me. It was just a multiplex that closed down. So almost all of these movies are movies from like the mid to late 2000s, mm-hmm. um, including a number of movies that I saw in first run. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I was going through this exhibition, which was really fun, like they had all the posters they had found as well. And they also had like videos about how they got the movies, mm-hmm. like the actual journey to getting the movies is almost as like thrilling as just talking about them. I mean, the the sheer mass of the material and is a real challenge. And they didn't think it was going to be that much. Like, they were going to like bulldoze and shut down the building like the day they showed up to pick them up. Damn. And what they found was secret rooms that just had tons more prints in them. Mm-hmm. I think it went to the point that like they couldn't even grab everything because they didn't have time. Mm. And what that made me think was, number one, it's crazy that India, which is the country that produces the most uh, films per year of anywhere in the world has no kind of um, place in North American culture or world culture mm-hmm. other than like India itself, considering they make so many movies and we just don't kind of touch it. And we don't know how we can kind of enter that world mm-hmm. either. There's no like... If only there were an episode of the Important Cinema Club <laughs> podcast that dealt with it. But like that flabbergasts me. And it also brings in the idea that we assume that everything is available and will be available forever. Mm -hmm. And like an example of this is just like, oh no, like it's disappearing and nobody cares. So it's going to be bulldozed. Like if those people hadn't called the George Eastman house, those like 500 films would be just gone on celluloid like forever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's crazy to me. Like, what does that say about like today's society? I guess we're just in a transitional point, right? I think it's very worrying to me frankly yeah i think the the number of people who care about preserving film mm-hmm. man i i <laughs> i i hope there are people paying who are going to pay for this stuff in the future i mean it, you know increasingly th- there, there was a petition going around because cbc is threatening to uh destroy its tape archives yeah they're digitizing they're it. digitizing it and destroying the tape archives and i mean the digitization has become very sophisticated but what we've seen in the past is uh, I mean, it's very flawed as well. Yeah, like the, for example, the Library of Congress would, uh, when they were getting rid of their nitrate film stock, they would transfer their prints onto 16 millimeter film stock and then junk their nitrate. I mean, that's a fucking tragedy. I mean, it, it may seem like it's permanent, but, you know, technology evolves. And it also works under the assumption that the material that you're using 
is like the final version of the and the mm-hmm. ultimate version, which is not always true. Yeah. Like if you transfer it and you fuck up, like that's the only yeah. version of that movie you're going to have. But people don't understand that. And also, um, you know, warehouse space is money. Yes. And the fact that like they can't get funding to just do it mm-hmm. is... I think like a travesty when it comes to the idea of historically keeping all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like a mixture of two things. One, all this stuff is not going to last forever. And two, places like India, it's weird that they don't have any real estate in North American kind of pop mm-hmm. culture. And then we talked about it on our episode that it's very foreign to English speaking audiences to the point that like it's difficult to get into it. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering why that kind of barrier wasn't crossed like with the advent of the internet and every academic text about globalization. I think what we've seen is that... A narrowing? Well, yeah, like Netflix and things like that haven't actually uh, increased people's likelihood to watch this stuff. People Mm -hmm. just get burrow further and further into their little silos. Even though that Netflix does do a good job at like presenting all this stuff with subtitles and that you couldn't see it before. Like my partner, I've mentioned this before, like really got into a South Korean Mm -hmm. comedy which she would have never done or looked for herself. And she had no problem. Reading yeah, it, I guess I either. have actually heard anecdotal evidence of mm. people like stumbling upon like Korean TV shows and enjoying them. Mm. Uh, so I hope that hope that happens. I, more. It's the idea. And we've talked about this over and over again about like curating. Right. And mm-hmm. that the Netflix doesn't really curate for viewers mm-hmm. because there's no one telling them like you should watch this, mm-hmm. which does lead to that boring into silos. Yeah. That said, I mean, this stuff is more accessible mm-hmm. than ever. Yeah, um, it's just people need to know what, where they should go yeah. and what to pick instead of, you know, watching the same stuff over and over again. Just like, you know, they should know that they should go out and watch the new Godard film, right? That just premiered at Cannes this weekend. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard, favorite uh, subject of the podcast, has a new film at Cannes, The Image Book, it's called. It's a YouTube poop. And yeah, <laughs> I'm very excited for it. I thought that he shot new footage for it. Like, I heard that he was filming something. No, it's not. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's a lot of found footage and mm-hmm. his... Uh, gnomic narration yeah which is fine honestly yeah. i think i think like uh, listen the fact that he's still making movies yeah still clinging to life like oh man it would be amazing if we learned that like jean Godard was like sacrificing the other french new wave so he could continue to live <laughs> that sounds like what's in his brand doesn't it any new Godard film is a gift i have my problems with all of the late period Godard films but he's also the only guy who can scratch a certain itch for me really he's the only- what is that itch like um, the idea of something that has been canonized as intellectual cinema? No, no, that's not it. It's it's simply, l- listen, nobody makes movies like Godard. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, nobody does the sort of things with images that he does. Mm. Nobody is as um, both evocative and confounding in his philosophy and his ideas as him. I mean, he is still as uh, opaque as he's ever been. Yeah, but he's one of those guys who he'll throw so much up on the screen and he'll say so many things that some of it sticks. Mm-hmm. Like he, you know, he some of his aphorisms, he has half a dozen aphorisms that, you know, have, have become very famous. <laughs> like which ones? I don't know. Um, all the ones you've heard. <laughs> truth. Uh, the only one I can think second. of is like the morality is like the tracking shot one, which he stole from Luc Moulet or, you and know, made his own. I like uh, the cinema is Nicholas Ray. Well, uh, okay, yeah. yeah I, I, I love all that. <laughs> I just, I, I keep waiting for like Godard's mask to fall and he's like, all right, I did it. The joke is over. Well, so yeah, I was reading his quotes from the press conference and because he did a press conference via FaceTime from his home in Switzerland. Yeah. And of course, you know, he's the same old Godard. Uh, I love all these kind of bloggers, people like us, you know, yeah. asking him these very kind of literal minded questions. David Davidson. David. Okay. Now this is what I was going to get to. David Davidson, our friend 
asked him a question and that touched my heart so much. You said that there was an unreality to like knowing and then watching a video of him doing this. The fact that I know someone who has spoken to Jean-Luc Godard is unfathomable to me because Godard is like a world historical figure mm-hmm. like you assume would be dead <laughs> yeah you assume he would be dead. like his, his life is so storied mm-hmm. and his influence is so great and also he's so remote mm-hmm. he lives in this home in switzerland and he's 87 and like the the possibility of talking to him he's not accessible no like even three decades ago he would like shut down people that want to talk to him Mm -hmm. and leave a note on their door that says like our conversations weren't intelligent enough yeah although apparently you know he goes grocery shopping in that swiss village (gasps) can you imagine being in the village and just seeing like Gadar grocery shopping he's like ketchup catsup ketchup catsup (laughs) i don't know 